Today is a crypto day and I'm going to talk a little bit about different cryptocurrencies and differences between this currency and that currency. But like in the end, I'm going to wrap it all up with a whole neat way of why it's important to have so many different cryptocurrencies and why cryptocurrencies don't need to follow others and why we need so many of them. Just because there's a big thing out there of people saying that if we have more cryptocurrencies than real world currencies, you know, we're only going to destroy the system. And I want to, exp I kind of want to talk against that and explain why that's not true. With the today's backlog, we only really need to cover a few things. There was um, shot one coins, which were very fast, able to be generated coins that then websites could actually use to transfer between themselves, but some people in the, the, the darker, deeper web had this ideal that we could use these proofs of these coins as a currency. And then you have uh, marketing coins, and then you have cryptography coins. SHA-1 coins really does follow in the cryptography, but because of how, the, how easy it is to generate a SHA-1 and how bad someone actually is there's a lot of breaks in it and there's a lot of collisions a lot of problems with it um it doesn't really follow under either one of these so marketing coins is stuff like being coin being coin was actually a coin i owned um and it was just basically a centralized density coin which we have other coins that would be similar to that now and it was really designed to pay for marketing between this you know companies and stuff and it was just a way of transferring money without transferring value it was almost like transferring credit. And then cryptography coins like Hatchcash being the one everybody remembers. But there was like Bitgold and a couple other ones right before that. And Hatchcash really was the first proof of work coin. I mean, you go to Bitgold and the other, ones, the other one before, they, they, they didn't do proof of work. There was some work. It wasn't much. It wasn't extraneous. It was guessable. And at the time, not, it didn't seem so easily guessable, but within their you know, six-month lifespan, it was guessable and copyable and all these different things. And it just got to a point where you know, we had to, they had to figure something else out, figure something else out. Well, if Hashcash was um, the, the coin that made proof-of-work work, Bitcoin made double-spending harder to do now that's the problem like people think that you can't double spend on bitcoin but there are ways to do so and in the end of the day we're not really going to fall into a lot of that stuff but we will cover some of it briefly it's mostly going to be about differences between coins just like bean coin is a centralized entity coin that transfers credit bitcoin is a network that that of the network's work generates coins to the people that are actually participating and that's a huge difference in coins and even if you look at Hashcash versus Bitcoin Hashcash took more computational power to do than the ones before it Bitcoin takes more computational power than all the coins before it so it's like as we go down this line there's this somewhere in here in this generation of coins coins should get harder to computate by computers that we have, binary computers. And that's done on purpose.
So differences between coins. Okay, so you're in the backlog. You got to hear about like the three first major kinds of coins. Shaw one, marketing proofs, and nowadays we have so many more. So let's kind of go over some of these differences in coins. First off, we have some coins which are censorship resistant, which means that the sense they don't censor naturally. The people in the system, people working together, they can censor, but the actual coin itself cannot. It means that the protocol, none of that has any kind of censorship ability. And Bitcoin was a big one in this because Hashcash, you can say, yeah, Hashcash and Bitgold were both censorship resistant, but really Bitcoin, because it figured out a way to try to stop double spending, and again, it just makes it harder. So that way, it became even more censorship resistant because now you don't have to worry about if I do something, will it instantly be double spent? Will someone else be able to spend it as well? And one of the reasons why this is important is like we have had coins where they were trying to do this. They they were just trying to increase the speed of the coin though. And there was a coin. It was like BCN. Um, and it was an almost instantaneously transferred coin. With it was a proof of work. Um, it was a CPU processable proof. And Bitcoin started off as CPU processable. And then we got to a point where people were like literally DDoSing the network and wallets, and they were double spending these coins. And so you would go make try to make a transfer, and during your three second, two second, one second transfer that had been transferred ten times. And sometimes you'd go make a transfer and it would just fail. And that's because it was already spent. And so there was all these problems um, in this system. And at the same time, like, this was, uh, BCN was a pre-mine coin. They're like 80% of the coin or 60% of the coin was pre-mine. And there's different ways to explain this, but pre-mine is probably the best way to say it. Sometimes it's shadow mine, sometimes it's secret mine, sometimes it's hidden mine, ninja mine, but this one was mine before it was open to the public, therefore pre-mine. Um, the differences between the mining really depends on when was it available to the public. And there's three of them that are before and three that are after, and you can have fun trying to figure that out because it, it's a fun ride learning that information. But so this almost instantaneous transferred coin had this issue. The reason why Bitcoin has a censorship resistance, why can it not be double spent as easily is, well, it takes 10 minute blocks. And then the block window isn't actually based on time. Like it doesn't actually sit there and timestamp. Okay, okay, okay. All the timestamping is relative. And to be honest, your computer that, that you're mining with does all the timestamping. But to determine when the next block is supposed to be or anything like that is built on a, a number of rule sets. And they are, everything in Bitcoin is a time value. It means it can be between A or B in time. It doesn't have to be in a specific spot. Because with cryptocurrency, time means nothing. It really does. It has no actual purpose other than to help us find if who did what first because with bitcoin it doesn't really matter who did what first um you have tons of you know 
transactions waiting to be approved and then the ones that do get approved are actually more based on the miner and the node of the miner and you think that you you could actually build a node to censor those transactions and there have been ways where people have tried to where some miners only transfer free coins coins that try not to put a trans uh, transaction price there are some that only accept the higher transaction price some that only accept the lower transaction price and because the way bitcoin works not one miner gets chosen over another one for the block it's more random the only part that's not random about choosing what block is the distance between entities so if miner a finds block one Miner A can't find block two. And it wasn't always like this. For the for the um, the first year, almost two years, Miner A could find all the blocks. It you know, it didn't really matter. And it's when it took somebody to go, hey, we need um we need a range scenario. We need a way to, to determine range. And even down to after a couple of years, they even said, Hey, we need to determine when someone transfers out of the network. And when someone's transferring within the network. And so there's all these little rule sets to help determine that. Now, Litecoin and, and some other coins that are all, you know, Bitcoin's the number one most fork coin. There's more forks based off of Bitcoin. That's either through the code base or through the actual chain. It's forked. People use it. And in when Bitcoin was first being made, they had this rule where the longest chain rule, the longest chain rule doesn't actually apply anymore. Hasn't applied in a number of years because all that really applies to is if two blocks get found at the exact same time. Because when two blocks get found at the, found at the exact same time, um, there's this time window of 10 minutes to determine which one of these is going to be the longest chain. And so miners actually mine on both blocks. You might have some miners mining on one, some miners mining on the other. And out of that scenario, whichever one gets the most mining becomes the next block applied to during the next block so then you have this this orphaned block the transactions in that block are not always orphaned but the block is and this is something people don't quite understand they think man this this is censorable because i could be in block b that got sent that didn't get accepted and it's orphaned actually no like your transaction just goes back in the main pool <laughs> and so we can't make nodes decide which um, transaction specifically is going to be accepted. Um, we can't decide which wallets in those transactions are going to be accepted. Um, and because we can't determine which miner is going to be accepted, but we can determine that if miner A is accepted, miners around miner A won't, including miner A. And it means that if a majority of your mining is in, say, China, which is a lot of people out there say a lot of Bitcoin's mining is in China, then if someone in China finds a block, the next block won't be found in China. It'll be found somewhere else. And, you know, let's say Japan or Taiwan or America or England or the, the Africa or South America, uh, Canada... I mean, like, the number of places it could be, instead of where it was first, the first one was found. It doesn't really matter, as long as it's far away. Even when you sync a Bitcoin, wallet, miner, node, it has this unusual 
well, we ha- we can't just sync with one node. We have to sync with multiple nodes, and some of the nodes have to be really far away. The amount of time it takes for me to gain data from that node, at least one of the nodes, has to be longer than any of the other nodes I, I, I connected to. And this multi-usable length of time, distance, and time value window is kind of what made Bitcoin so unique. And to this day, even though it's the number one most forked coin, that's still what makes it unique. Not all the coins that forked it do all the same procedures. For example, Litecoin, um, one of the first coins to fork Bitcoin, and it forked the code base, they actually dropped the block window size to like two and a half minutes, five minutes, something like that. And the point of doing that was, well, we can make transactions faster. Um, there's a natural issue there. Um, there's more natural forks. And what that means is there's more double blocks found more often. And sometimes blocks will append while the other the orphan block hasn't been orphaned. So it means there's miners still mining on it. So you run this chance of, well, there is always a chance that one of these orphan blocks could become its own fork because any orphan block that gets continuously mined on while the other cha- the other side of the chain is still being mined on becomes its own fork um, and that's the reason for the 10 minute window and actually it's not 10 minutes it's an X number of computational cycles that we're actually looking at now, a lot of times when you're looking at the code or when you're looking at people describe it they say 10 minute window because it's the easiest way to describe it because Based on the difficulty, we'll determine how many cycles actually have to be performed. And so Bitcoin's not always 10 minutes. Sometimes it's 12 minutes. Sometimes it's 9 minutes. Sometimes it's 14 minutes. Sometimes it's 8 minutes. Sometimes it's 20 minutes. And actually, I don't think it's ever gone 20 minutes. But I think the time it went was like 17 minutes. But anyways, it's not actually time-based. If it was time-based, people could rely on like a clock. And some people do. But it's not. So that's what makes... Bitcoin unique in its own unique way. The reason why there's so many people they don't want to increase the block size is because, well, if you increase that block size, um, this 10 minute window might not be enough time to handle the computational processing. And especially if you have double the size of the block and you have to fill up this block and computational over and over and over and over and over and over, hash it over and over and over. Yeah, I mean, there's all these reasons why a one minute, I mean, a one megabyte block is important. A lot of people say it, it's the network transfer rates and the price of transferring and the bytes per sat. And yeah, that actually has a little bit to do with the arguments. But in reality, if you double the block size, you should double the block window. And that's something people don't want to do. 10 minutes is already a long time. You might still make a transfer with Bitcoin. It could still take an hour, a day, a month. Like, it's not determined how long it will take before it's blocked into a block. And that's where um, people see as issues and stuff. And there are rumors where people say, oh yeah, in the future we might upgrade it to a two megabyte block. But really, it probably shouldn't ever 
because if they do, they should increase the time window. And when we say this, okay, with these features of Bitcoin, why do we need other coins that have the same features? And so that's the next segment. It's really going to be discussing why coins don't need these same features as Bitcoin. So I kind of described like BCN or Litecoin a little bit and explained, you know, there are other features out there. Well, there's also other types of coins. There's proof of work. There's um, like basically a decentralized bank currency. Uh, there's decentralized federal currencies. There's decentralized entity currencies. There's um, objects on the blockchain. Non-fungible tokens. There are... Um, Honestly, I don't think I could sit here and list all of the types of cryptocurrencies they are now. And some of them, I don't even consider cryptocurrencies. So let's start with there. Not all currencies are cryptographic. And what that means is it didn't take cryptographic processing power to make the coins. The coins might use cryptography with inside of it, but it didn't take cryptography to build it. It didn't take the computational power to build it. Ripple. Okay, Ripple is a kind of basically a centralized entity coin. It reminds me so much of Beancoin, but it's worse. They try to claim decentralization and they try to claim all these things, but it doesn't have any of that. It was developed and made by a company out of thin air instantly. All the coins they have were boom, made. And then it was put out and stuff and... It's really just designed to replace the SWIFT network. If you don't know what that is, that's actually how your banks uh, transfer money amongst themselves. And a lot of times they don't actually transfer money on SWIFT. They transfer credit. They transfer basically the same thing as Bean. They're transferring something that represents something else, and nothing actually moves. And Ripple uh, actually moves the coin. So that's where it becomes slightly different. It's where... One of their marketing strategies is where, like, Swift doesn't actually move anything. We're actually moving something, and it's almost instantaneous. It's super fast. And one of the reasons why they don't have to worry about things like we had to worry with BCN is, well, it's not it's not decentralized. And no matter how much they try to claim it or whatever, they were even been a, you know put under microscope and kind of attacked by the governments because they were a monopoly upon themselves because they're not decentralized because of all these other problems. Um, so the people who made Ripple, um, I think a couple of people left the project by then, but it was like six or seven people, and they just sold or they gave the coins to another company that's actually a name change of the company that it was at the time of transfer, and by owned and operated by the exact same people, except for maybe one or two people. There. Like After that monopoly thing came up, there was a few people that realized, yeah, this is not really decentralized and they left the project and those were actually the the main people that actually developed the the protocol for ripple and how it's supposed to be made and stuff so i'm going to show you right there that it really isn't what they're claiming but they're not trying to target themselves to the common person anymore they used to and because of the whole monopoly thing they had to stop that they had to just put it out there and then now they're really trying to go after businesses and companies and entities and banks because 
you know, if you think about it, it's a little bit better than Swift. It really is. I can't deny that. But it's 100% centralized. Um, it's so centralized. There's censorship abilities in it where if they can't figure out a consensus amongst the people who are actually trying to participate in it, the nodes, then they actually have this this list they release. And basically, um, whenever there's a consensus issue, they say, uh, trust these people more than anybody else. And they decide who is trustable. And basically, when there's a consensus problem, um, Ripple has the ability to knock off um, nodes who are not allowing consensus. And I know nowhere does it actually say that. But when you look at how the protocol works, it puts out this list. And if people don't follow the list to cause a consensus, they have the ability to drop nodes. Like the, They have that ability in the code set to drop a node. They actually have the ability to remove stake from a node. And stake in Ripple is not really like stake anywhere else except for maybe nano. And so there's this, this issue there where they can, they can actually cause censorship because if this node has a stake, it has a say in, this, in the, the consensus model. And if they can drop that stake out of that node, it no longer has anything to say in the consensus model. And then they can consent. And then if they put money back in stake and whatever, then that's fine. And someone actually pointed out to me that, well, they don't take the money. They just drop it out of stake. The person keeps their money, but they're no longer staking. And it can be done so quickly. They can turn off your stake and on your stake so fast. You don't even notice it. It's crazy. Um, until you actually try these things, you, it's hard to find in the, the, the code. you got to kind of understand blockchain so well to be able to see this type of stuff. Like Nano, for example. Nano actually has censorship built into the protocol. They even talk about it in the white paper. Oh, well, if you look like you're bootstrap poisoning, we will, I mean, like the system will parallel, make you on a parallel network where you're basically on your own fork with nobody else. So then investment I had to make to get these coins because you can't mine it. Just like Ripple, you can't mine it. So it's this investment I had to make to get the coins are no longer any good. And in order for me to get back in the network, I had to start all over again. I had to make a new investment, get all my nodes back up, try, you know, handle all of this and that. Yeah. And so that's the problem there is there are some coins that are actually centralized in this manner. Um, yeah, no, Nano, you can't say is a centralized coin, but it is a censorable uh, system that can actually sense it. It's a blockchain that has censorship ability, not just... Um, the, the company can censor you, but the actual protocol can censor you. And that's a whole nother level of um, terribleness in this types of currencies from someone who prefers decentralization. That's me. But at the same time, we need these type of currencies. Not everybody trusts Bitcoin. Nobody trusts Litecoin. And honestly, very few coins require trust. Nano requires trust. Ripple requires trust. BCN requires trust. Um, you know, Monero doesn't require trust. Bitcoin doesn't require trust. Litecoin doesn't require trust. And that's why, like, you know, um, Hashcash, uh, Bitcoin, uh, Bitgold, they, they didn't want trust in the blockchain. They said, basically, 
through the different fair, uh, people who have made statements on it, as creators of these coins, because it's not the same creator per coin, um, it basically came down to trust is a bank thing. And if we're all in the dark web, we're all in these seedy areas where we don't even trust them with information on our, our servers, then we can't trust each other unless it's the mechanics of the system that puts it all together. And there are a lot of companies and stuff where they'll say, oh, this coin is this, it is that. But without the differences between coins, we're, we're never going to have an ecosystem that can work. So why is it important to still have Nano? Why is it important to still have Ripple? Why is it important to still have Litecoin, Monero, Ravencoin, TurtleCoin, um, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash? Um, why is it important for all this stuff? Is It gives options. If we only had as many coins as there were federal-based coins, then there'd only be like, what, 23 or 24 coins. And if you think about it, how does that help us innovate? There are tons of coins like DeFi coins. Okay, this is a decentralized finance coin. So half of these coins aren't actually decentralized. Keep that in mind. That's just a title given to help explain the ideal that they are trying to get to. Um, and what that really means is these are coins that you can use to gain interest either as another coin or as the same coin. That's really what it comes down to. Okay, so you're like doing something with these coins and then you're getting an interest back. And at first, to be able to get into the DeFi space, you had to know code. You had to know JavaScript. You had to know how to perform these actions and you had to be able to do all bunch of stuff. Get a flash loan that you have to pay back in the same transaction. And in that transaction, you have to go here and lock in exchange for this and lock up that and then take... Um, your immediate profit back out of that lock and put in here to lock up for that to be able to get this other coin to be able to exchange to be able to pay back your first your, your flash loan and if you're lucky after all of that you might have a small you know you might have a small profit oh yeah don't forget about your transaction fee though and so there's all this work to do now it's like go here choose what coin you want hit the button boom you're ready and you know, that's kind of, you know, okay, cool. That's nothing wrong with that. But what that sparked was innovation because all of this processing power, that it's, all this all this stuff, knowledge it took to do all this was difficult. And there were people, you know, moving millions of dollars at a time like this because they knew there was something out there. And the way it sparked innovation was there was a company that actually rug pulled. And what that means is it's not quite like a scam, but it's totally a scam. And what that means is that it was working as intended. But the currency, either the currency you get back as interest or the currency being used to gain interest, um, a large portion of it was being held by a single entity and they sold all those. So either the value of the coin you're trying to get interest from dumped so hard you can no longer gain interest or there was nothing else to gain interest from. Now, there were also um, rebase coins. A lot of the decentralized uh, financial systems, they use something called rebasing, where we reset the value back to zero. And there have been problems with that in the past, too, because like there's a lot of the early DeFi coins, 
relied on rebase in order to be able to redistribute coins. And what that means is if your coins weren't locked up at the end of a certain period, normally within the same day, 24 hours, all of the non-locked coins were pulled out of the wallets, put back into this like big pool that the single entity holds for redistribution the next day so people can buy more and continue to do this. And if you didn't know it, you got screwed. And I knew lots of people who put thousands of dollars into DeFi, did not know about rebase, and got rebased. What that means is they lost almost all of their value, if not all of their value, because they thought their coins were safe in their wallet. And the only thing I can think of, the reason why we even have that, was there was a company that figured out how to pull funds out of a wallet. And yeah, they had to have a specific type of uh, contract and they had to have contracts watching contracts in order to perform all this. But in the end of the day, what that ba- that type of coin basically meant was it was moving coins in and out of your wallet based on how much you bought or how much value you were supposed to have. So that your wallet, if you had $50 in your wallet, you always had $50 in your wallet. If the coin price went down, you got more coins. If the coin price went up, you got less coins. And this was a way to help... Um, people who were not used to crypto where if they bought $50 today it might not be worth $50 tomorrow and it was cool it sparked innovation and again DeFi sparked innovation to um, now people can actually put up money both a specific coin and a, a base coin like on Ethereum you have additional coins on Ethereum so they might be able to put up Ethereum plus one of these additional coins or a bunch of these additional coins with their Ethereum and now people can go into different trading platforms that are truly decentralized meaning when you go up there and you trade you're not trading you're not giving your money to an entity who waits for someone to, to trade back now you're giving your money to a pool and instantly getting money back and it's only because people put in those coins in the first place that you can even do that and that's called liquidity adding you're adding liquid coins or liquid value into this pool for people to be able to pull out of on the fly but at the same time, they have to pay. Um, they have to pay. You know, they have to pay a fee, just like everywhere else. And that fee is then distributed amongst all the people adding in liquidity, and the people who add in liquidity um, get their return back, either in the base or the the additional coin or both. And it's cool. It's awesome. But without one coin that seemed like a scam, and a bunch of scam coins, we would never be to this point. Absolutely. And so when we look at like proof of work, there are people trying to figure out how to do proof of work differently. Oh, well, we don't actually have to do proof of work. We can have the nodes do all the work. We don't need miners. We don't need this machine that performs all the actions, that makes all the decisions, and nodes just look at the network and keep memory. No, the, the nodes can do it. And so there are coins where they do proof of work and proof of stake. Proof of stake is just basically where you put up money on your node and you lock it in. And you say, all right, these coins are locked. You can't move them off this node. And this gives my node the ability to make decisions based on the number of coins I put in. Not the value of them, the number of. And that makes a huge difference because there are some nowadays where they're trying to say the value of it makes a difference, which causes manipulation in the system. And that's what we're trying to get away. We're trying to find how can we really truly stop people from manipulating. Now, if you think back, if Bitcoin is so censorship resistant and so less ability to be manipulated why do we need these well 
Bitcoin has flaws, just like all other coins. Every time there is a fork in the chain, a fork in the code base, and when I say fork in the code base, I mean like they start at Genesis or at the um, 2011 spot in the blockchain. That, those are two of the most common places for people to actually fork Bitcoin. Genesis, and there's a spot in 2011. There's a certain block height people tend to fork at. And the reason why that is is because they say, okay, this gives Satoshi keys to my Bitcoin version. This gives me the ability to say this is Bitcoin, but we have to add another title because it's not the same Bitcoin. And anytime that happens where someone forks off the chain or Genesis, um, it actually allows for a double spin because there are two wallets on both chains with value. Now, at the very beginning of a fork on a on uh, you know a new coin, um, basically within the first block of the new coin's block, they can double spin. And there were people that figured this out just from naturally forking and seeing. Oh wait, there was a double spin on Bitcoin. How'd that happen? Is that because of? Oh, that was because of us. Because on our first block, we performed transactions, and on those transactions, it actually went through on Bitcoin, because. At that first block, there's still this technical ability for miners on Bitcoin network to mine that. If it's in the same port and stuff like that, it can be mined by these other ones. And this was an accident that a handful of people noticed that now they like regularly fork Bitcoin and they're regularly trying to keep this going. And... There's even another way to double spin on Bitcoin. Basically, if you have so much mining power and you have a full history of Bitcoin, uh, when actions happen, you can actually try to counteract those actions. Okay, we noticed a natural fork today and our miners chose to mine on the one that didn't get naturally accepted. So... Um, we're going to then try to mine up back up to the top with you guys, and then we're going to try to get the miners convince the miners that we are the main chain or a test chain and merge back in. And I know there's nowhere in the code that says blocks can merge, but blocks can merge. No joke. You can actually have a natural split in the Bitcoin or most proof of works, and then they can merge back in. And this is more what people would call experimental theory or blockchain theory. But uh, we've seen it before where actually code, uh, Coinbase is this big, huge entity. They have tons of miners where they have made claims in the past that there was a double spin today of something that was in the past that actually, you know, should have never been spent in the first place. So they can claim a double spin. And you can go through the blockchain and you can see the other block because Bitcoin doesn't forget orphan blocks. Boom. Right there. You hear that, right? Bitcoin doesn't forget orphan blocks. And this is what makes a huge difference where if I have enough computational power and I have this block at the time of and I can very quickly get it spent because there's a natural fork in Bitcoin while an actual coin forked off the exact same spot 
well, I can make this claim that this wallet was, all these, these wallets in the orphan block were spent by allowing the spin. And because they have all this power, they can actually, they're basically, they're, they're like second layering those spins. They're allowing the spins even though they shouldn't have been allowing the spins. And then later on, when those other wallets in the main chain get spent, they can make this claim, hey, 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 that was already spent. And any one of the, the even this one, even this theory of uh, double spin has been noticed. There's been like two or three times where Coinbase made a claim of double spin and people who actually had their own nodes and miners disagreed with them because they could see how that was an orphan block. But Coinbase wasn't accepting it as an orphan block. And they didn't even have to have the computational power to block that all the way up to merge it back in. But because there was a natural fork on coin on Bitcoin at the same day, on for that same block in time, it might not have been at that same block, but for that same block in time, they technically spent the fork currency, claimed it as Bitcoin, and stuffed it somewhere in the in the the blockchain that's a merger that is a merger and it's very technically difficult but they have done it multiple times and so if we didn't have all these issues with bitcoin people wouldn't look for new innovative ways to stop these things and yes there are coins that try to stop block merging there's only a couple but they do exist and then we have coins again remember Earlier, I was saying proof of work and proof of stake coins. Those are the coins that are trying to stop that. Because if I have proof of work going on and I have nodes, whenever there's mean pool, people get, we get transactions in the mean pool. Well, these nodes can help us get rid of them. And if we can empty out that mean pool every single time, like constantly, we can empty it out. Then if Coinbase tries to make a claim of double spin and one of their spins are actually in the main pool because it's not being accepted because it's on an orphan block. Well, guess what? We don't actually have to worry about that anymore. And if we're, we're doing all this actions in the miners, some, some group of miners has a lot of computational power says, look, I'm saying there's a double spin because I already allowed that spin. You guys didn't, I allowed that spin. Well, you're not supposed to allow spin. We're supposed to all agree on spins. No, I allowed that spin. Well, nodes can then go, well, hey, look, we have history and we have power too. We don't see that actual spin. F you. And so it becomes now a two-way debate in the consensus instead of a single-way debate in the consensus. And we no longer have to worry about do we have enough computational power to output, to, to, to be able to say no against them? And you're probably thinking, if you're, especially if you're in Bitcoin, you're a Bitcoin miner, you're probably thinking, we don't actually have rules for that. We don't have any of that. But it naturally happens. Just because you don't have a rule set doesn't mean it stuff doesn't happen naturally within cryptocurrencies, within the protocols for consensus, and within all these different methods and ways of doing things. So, again, without flaws in Bitcoin... There'd never be innovation on top of it. If Bitcoin chose, if the Bitcoin uh, devs kept saying, no, we're not expanding the, the, the blockchain size or the block size, there wouldn't be Bitcoin Cash. 
Bitcoin Cash is its own entity. It's its own thing. It performs its own actions. It's 100% different than Bitcoin. And for the longest time, I used to get so mad because they used to go, we are the real Bitcoin. We are the real Bitcoin. We're the first Bitcoin. But they're not. They're not the first Bitcoin. They didn't exist until 2016. You know? And that used to make me so mad. But fundamentally... It is its own entity coin. It is its own thing. It it's actually good. It's not like a bad coin or anything. They just had a poor marketing scheme for a very long time. And then once they started getting out of that marketing scheme, people started opening up to it because, well, they weren't being pushed away from a couple of people who didn't actually have a whole lot to do with the code base or anything. You know, they, didn't, they weren't deterring people away. And so they were actually able to use it. They were actually able to look at it. And they were like, whoa, this is actually good. Why do they even try to claim their Bitcoin? They ain't a Bitcoin. This is really good, though, on its own. And it's like Bitcoin SV. When Bitcoin Cash had an issue with inside the system where one person was saying, I am Bit, I am Satoshi, so you have to do whatever I say. We have to adjust this, this code base to the way I want it. And he wanted to add censorship. Well, Bitcoin Cash, you know, devs were like, mm, no. Mm -mm. not going to accept this whatever you want to do so there was a fork there now I have Bitcoin SV and even though the person claiming to be Satoshi isn't really Satoshi because he, he could prove it but he doesn't and to prove your Satoshi you have to record yourself transferring coins out of a Satoshi wallet with a Satoshi nounce amongst the, the blockchain you don't have to sign your name or anything you just have to show that you did it and have record on the, the blockchain that app and be able to prove that announces the Satoshi nounce. Which means it's a different nounce than all the other announces, which are not even allowed no more. And the reason why it's not allowed anymore is because we don't want there to be someone else having their own nounce and claiming to be Satoshi. And okay, great. Not a problem. Fine. You have your own coin that can actually find people who like purposely ruin the system. And can report them to the police. That's crazy censorship. But it's there. They want it. Fine. Great. Now we have a place for people who want that type of censorship. We have Hivecoin and Steamcoin. And what made these Steamit and Hive so different? Well, nothing. They're almost the exact same thing. Even to a point where both uh, major platforms running those... Uh, blockchains, or they have the most stake in those blockchains, actually have center lists. They have a list that they both share of six entities who are not allowed to participate. They actually censor their blockchain. And, well, it's not their blockchain, their platform on the blockchain. And you're probably thinking, hmm, that's crazy. The blockchain isn't censoring it. The entities on top of it are. It's not like Nano where the protocol censors. It's actually the people on top of it who are censoring. There's also Rebuzz. Rebuzz is kind of like your Facebook, your Instagram, your TikTok, all in one. And, well, they have a list of front-end censored. That means people, certain people can't use the app that's built on top of the public blockchain. Doesn't mean they can't participate with the blockchain doesn't mean they can't interact with the blockchain but there is this censorship there there is another coin uh, where they actually connect your data to a phone number 
And there's actually a handful of coins that do this, where they connect to a phone number or to an email address. And so if you lose that phone number, you lose the email address, well, you lost your coins. It is its own way, a type of censorship, but it's not even being performed by the blockchain or by the people. It's being performed by the stuff built on top of that blockchain. Like if I built a uh, social media on top of Bitcoin, right? And then I started censoring people out of my social media platform. Well, I'm the one censoring, not the blockchain. And again, that's nothing like Nano and Ripple. Ripple, the company Ripple, who actually has control over a majority of Ripple, um, they can censor through NodeDrop and uh, Ripple Pool. In Ripple Pool, you don't hear, actually hear it called that. I think in the code base, it was called um, anti-consensus uh, anti uh, pool or anti-censor block or something like that and it just basically means they'll they either block your node from the network or they pull your they basically put your coin your stake back in your wallet and say oh no no, no you're not staking right now <laughs> and and uh, nano actually directly censors people who it thinks is performing bad actions it doesn't actually matter if they are or not if there's enough consensus that someone may be performing bad actions they get censored Simple as that. And there's only a handful of ways, like two ways that it can happen, but it can happen. And so it, without all these differences between all these different coins, there would be people who didn't feel comfortable with using a form of cryptocurrency. And because we have so many of them, well, they can feel comfortable. Why do some cryptos have such a short lifespan? And why do some cryptos have a long lifespan? Well, put it simply, um, we also see it in fiat. Some fiat currencies don't last. Some companies don't last. Some entities just don't last. And I think one of the main reasons why Bitcoin is surviving as long as it has is... It was designed to be able to be mined for a very long time, like 40-something years, almost 50 years. And in the end, most fiat currencies don't survive very far after 300 years. Most types of trade systems don't survive over about two and a half, three thousand years. And because of all of the innovation in the space, some coins don't need to survive. It, it does suck if people spend money on a coin just for it to go down, down, down. But hopefully that will teach them to do a little bit more research first. Hopefully that will teach that entity to do something to ensure that doesn't happen again. Or, and in some cases, it causes them to sell out unnecessarily early. Okay. If they didn't do that, there wouldn't be room for someone else. There wouldn't be room for this. There wouldn't be room for that. The reason why some cryptos don't last is all for their own reason, but mostly because something is innovated that was better. Could we ever get some kind of innovation that's better than Bitcoin? Have the amount of hardness that Bitcoin has and have more flexibility? Yeah, definitely. Does it really matter if 
anything ever is better than Bitcoin. Not until Bitcoin is gone. That's the problem nowadays with a lot of marketing. Is people get confused because they hear words like, this coin is better than that coin. But in reality, no coin is better than any coin. Because without those differences in coins, we couldn't actually have the space of an ecosystem like we're starting to have now. And just like that, this outro isn't actually sponsored by anybody. So I just want to kind of give everybody a little bit of a heads up. I have had a crypto uh, educational website that also has a faucet. Faucets built inside of it. What that means is it will give you, it's a hub for cryptocurrency stuff. Good sites to go to. And it's great for beginners. And that's kind of the point that this site has. Is It's great for beginners. People who are still not sure if they want to get into crypto. They can come here. They can go to this website. It's right here on your screen. 3dbcless.com. Just click right there. Go on your web browser. And they can get some free coins. They can experience cryptocurrency. And they can learn. And then after that, they can find more ways to go outside this website and broaden their horizon. At the same time, though, this one website has so many locate has so many places all in one location. You can go to it every day, collect some free coins, and go to the normal places you go to. Go to your trade site. Go to this site. Go to that site. All through the same site. And because of the way this website's built, it's serverless, which means after you go to it. You can download it or save it to your bookmark page and have access to it. Even if it changes, you have access to that that original version. And that's what's really cool about it. So again, 3dbtclist.com, free crypto hub, free faucets for you to give a try for you to go ahead and get a feel. And if you know anybody who wants to get a Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, but they're scared or unsure, not sure, this is the perfect place to send them. Allow them to get some free coins. Allow them to learn. Allow them to experience what's up. And there's so much information there that it's just going to be a, a, a wide opener to someone who doesn't have cryptocurrency.